You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning, church family. So great to see all of you here on Sunday morning. Um, I'm Corey, I'm the senior pastor here, and last week we mentioned that this fall we're going to be doing a little bit of just remembering and reminding ourselves of who we are as a church, who we are in particular as this third church family. And so one of the things we're going to do for the next six weeks is we're going to look at these values that we have as a church. These are not things that we talk about too much, but they are more like behind-the-scenes spiritual DNA that animates much of what we do as a church. And so we're going to each week look at one of these briefly And then interview somebody that we feel like embodies and helps cultivate that value in our community. So today we're looking at biblical faithfulness, and I have here with us my dear friend and sister um, Nan Clark. Nan is one of our pastors, and she does lots of pastoral care for our community, and she's also a stellar Bible teacher. Um, And so today we're talking about biblical faithfulness, and let me just read that value to you. Um, It says this, that we are rooted in Scripture, I think we have a slide for this, that we are rooted in Scripture, believing that God speaks through His living and active Word today, just as He has in the past. In a time when many struggle to find meaning and direction, we believe that the Bible tells the true story of the triune God, the world, and ourselves, and we endeavor to live humbly and responsively within that story. So Dan, why don't you tell us a little bit about what biblical faithfulness means to you and why it's important to you? Well, I think for me, biblical faithfulness means taking the Bible on its own terms and not importing um, modern or even postmodern ideas onto the text to make it something we want it to be or think it should be. So here's an example of what I mean. Um, For a lot of my Christian life, I thought of the Bible as the manufacturer's handbook. So... You know, God made us. He knows how we're supposed to work. So we read the handbook to find out how we're supposed to live so that our lives are good. And when things go wrong, we go to troubleshooting page and find scriptures that speak to that. Find the error code. <laughs> the error yeah, code. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's yeah. it. Yeah. And, but the shortcoming of that is that it, first of all, it takes scripture out of context often. But it also ignores the richness, the texture, the depth of Scripture. And so there's two things that I've learned over the years that have helped me, I think, um, read and interpret Scripture uh, more faithfully. And the first one is understanding that Scripture has the shape of a story. That's what God gave his people. And from beginning to end, the scripture tells one story. And it answers the questions of who God is, who are we, and why are we here? What went wrong? Because we all know something went wrong. Uh, How is it getting fixed? And where, we are go- where are we going? And so wherever we're reading in the Bible, trying to be aware of where we are in that unfolding story can really be helpful in helping us to be faithful in how we read and interpret Mm. that scripture. And I think for me, what reading the Bible this way um, has shown me is, I used to think 
being a Christian was about God coming into my life and making it all good and right and holy and everything. Now I see what the scripture is as an invitation to live in God's story. And that's not always what we think it's going to be. Um, there's lots of surprises and curveballs, but it's his story, not our stories. Mm. And we are blessed and privileged to be participants in that story. And it's, then, it's hard, though, because the story, I mean, there's a lot of things in the story that don't make any sense sometimes. There are. Right? Yep, there's yeah, a so lot of... what do we do about that? Well, there's <laughs> lots of mystery. I always love what Corey Ten Boom said when you come to a problem and you, you just are shaking your head and can't figure out how that fits you hang it on a hook <laughs> and you wait patiently and you pray. And I think um, when you read the scriptures as one story, uh, you start to see connections and their understanding comes from understanding the big story and seeing how those hard parts fit within that story. But it takes a lot of humility and it takes a lot of work to do that. Um, so the second thing is uh, understanding that scripture is an ancient text. It's not a modern text that we can access easily. And so um, understanding that I love that God was perfectly happy and able to communicate to those people in ways that they understood, in ways that made sense to them in their world and in their culture, but that pulled them out of it as well. And I, I think as we cross that divide from our world to theirs and understand it as they would have understand it, then we can do the work of understanding how does it speak into our lives now in the 21st century. Mm. And I think um, the words that help have helped me the most to understand that is to say scripture was written to them and for us. And so as we understand how it spoke to them, then we can seek to understand how it still speaks to us today. Mm -hmm. yeah. why, why, tell us how this came to be so important to you. Well, um, we started out early in our Christian lives moving around a lot. So we went to a lot of different cities, countries, and cultures, and uh, saw the Bible used in very different ways in those places. So here's just one example. We lived in Madison, Wisconsin, and to be a member of the church, you had to sign a card that you wouldn't drink. And then we moved to France, and we went to a church. Yeah, yeah we didn't join that church, just so you know, I wasn't breaking my pledge. <laughs> we moved to France, and the first church we went to was a, a lovely, welcoming, small church. And every Sunday, they all stayed for dinner after church. And we go upstairs to this room, and there's a bottle of wine on every table. <laughs> and, but women had to have their head covers in the, covered in the service, and they couldn't wear pantsuits. So that sort of started <laughs> us on a journey of saying, well, why do we say, why do we pick this and not that? And Scott McKnight, in his book, The Blue Parakeet, talks about how we all pick and choose. Everybody does. We're going to pick what scriptures we're going to pay attention to, what are cross-cultural, what, what are not. And our task is to pick and choose well. Mm. And so I think the idea of story and mm. um, the ancient text has helped us to pick and choose 
better so that we can live faithfully in God's story in the 21st century Mm. in continuity with how people have lived throughout history Mm. in God's story. But it looks different, too. There is discontinuity. Well, thanks, Nan, for showing us how to do that work um, in this (laughs) complex world that we live in. Let's just pray that um, the Lord would help us do this. Lord, thank you for Nan and for all that she's taught us about paying attention to the Word of God, taking it on its own terms, attending to the original context, following the grain of the story that we might apply the Word of God to the complex and very different world that we live in today. Help us to be faithful people, faithful to the Word of God, which reveals your son Jesus and the story of the gospel to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Nan. Let's give Nan a round of Well, um, if you were with us last week, you um, heard me mention that we're going to start. We're starting a new sermon series today. We're calling this um, "Life with God, Life with Others, and Life for the World." Uh, we talked about how we're in a transition period right now as a church. We have this pandemic behind us, which has left all of us a little bit spiritually and relationally flabby, um, where some of our habits and common routines of worship have been disrupted. And we also have something really challenging ahead of us. We have a big move to Regency Square Mall in about three months, and this is a big adventure ahead. And so we want to spend the next few months you know, getting, getting fit, uh, returning to the basics, returning to the foundations, returning to the spiritual gym to restore some of these habits and common practices that we know lead to health. So as you can see, this series, Life with God, Life with Others, and Life with the World, um, is actually based on our vision for discipleship here at Third. We have this little triangle that is just called the up and out um, discipleship triangle. This is just meant to suggest to you that the Christian life consists of basically three main relationships, your relationship with God, your relationship with fellow believers in the church, and your relationship for your neighbors and for the world in need. And that that Jesus, when we watch Jesus, he patterned his life in this way. And that if we follow Jesus, we wanna pattern our lives in the same way that he did. And so what we want to do over the next six weeks is look at each of these three relationships, life with God, life with each other, and life for the world, and look at two practices for each of them, so six total, that we can cultivate together so that we can continue to grow and become spiritually healthy. Um, So the first two weeks, we're looking at this first relationship, life with God. So this week, we're going to look at this practice, be fully present with the church every Sunday. That's what we're looking at today. And then next week, we're going to look at this second practice, be fully present with God every day. So today, this day, we're looking at this one, be fully present with the church every Sunday. What I'm suggesting to you is that one of the bedrock practices of your life, one of the most important things that you could be doing is to actually show up here in person at church every week, every Sunday, not just once or twice a month, not just on special occasions, even when you're tired, even when you don't feel like it. I'm inviting you to consider showing up at your local church as important as you may getting to work or getting to school or keeping a dinner date or a concert ticket or showing up at the doctor to arrange the habits of your life that demonstrate that this is not an optional but a necessary thing, a bedrock habit of our life together. Now, some of you are already rolling your eyes and you're saying, oh, you would say that. You're paid to be here, professional Christian man. Yeah, and I get it. I know that it sounds easy for me to say that, right? Um, I get it. However, I, I really do want to, to, to suggest that even in this time when everyone is so busy and there's so much happening and we have all this great technology, we have online streaming and podcasts and all these ways to tune in, 
it's still, you might ask, is it still really important and even reasonable to expect that you show up here every week? And I want to say, yes. It is not just reasonable, but necessary for your own spiritual flourishing. So let's look together at the Bible, Hebrews chapter 19, sorry, chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. So if you turn there with me, I'm going to read this text. We don't know much about who wrote the book of Hebrews. We just know that this person was Jewish. They were steeped in the Old Testament, and they clearly had a pastor's heart, a love for the people of God. So let's read Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promises faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. So this is an important transition passage in the book of Hebrews. Kids, if you look at the text and it says the first word, what's the first word that in the reading? Did somebody say it? Therefore, and I had a Bible study teacher once that said, whenever you see a therefore, you have to ask what is therefore, right? And it's there because of what everything that came previous to it, all the first nine chapters that came. And in verse 19 through 21, the pastor basically summarizes in three verses what he has spent nine chapters unpacking, all the ways that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the whole Old Testament temple and sacrificial system. So verse 19, he says, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice for sin. By a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. Jesus has opened the way into the holiest of holy places where God dwells. And verse 21, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, Christ is our representative bringing us into the presence of God. So here he is, he has summed up his entire argument of nine chapters. Jesus is the sacrifice, Jesus is the curtain, Jesus is the priest. He's built his case, he's done his work, he's set the stage, and now, therefore, he's gonna tell us what should you do in response to this good news? Well, here's what you do. Come and worship God worship. He says that one of the very best ways we can respond to this incredible good news is to just show up week by week with God's people to worship the God who loves us. Why? Why is that so important? Well, in verses 22, 23, and 24, he gives three exhortations, each of which begins with, let us, let us. So I'm going to talk about the three lettuces, three lettuces that teach us about corporate worship. And you see my little lettuces up there? That's to help you remember, okay? Let us draw near, <laughs> let us hold fast, and let us spur one another on. Each of these lettuces teach us something about the importance of what we're doing right now in corporate worship, okay? So let's look at the first one, verse 21. Let us draw near. Now, this is what this teaches us. If you go to the next slide, it shows us that corporate worship expresses the truth of our collective reconciliation with God. Verse 22, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and the full assurance of faith, 
having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. What he's saying is, is that Jesus has opened the way to God. We were all kicked out of God's presence, separated from him. But now through Jesus, our sacrifice, our priest, our door, we have all been brought back into the holiest of holies, the very triune God himself who made us and loves us and who is alone worthy of our worship through Christ. We have total access into the holiest place of God. You know, uh, some of you know that I worked for this um, author and theologian named John Stott for several years, and I would fly all over the world with him, and one of the best things about flying with him was the special access we had to all of the airport lounges. Some of these are very fancy places, right? And because he had like a billion miles, we could get into any lounge in any airport in the world. And so what we would do is we'd walk up, and there's always sort of like a menacing-looking person standing there blocking you from getting into the holiest of holy airplane lounges. And they say, card, please. And Dr. Stott would take his membership card and hand it over, and they'd say, welcome, Dr. Stott. And then they would turn and look suspiciously at me. And Stott would just say, he's with me. And in I would go, you know, this young man without any pedigree whatsoever. So with him, the access was given. And this is what Paul, this is what the author is saying, is that Jesus gives us total access. No matter who you are, what kind of background you have, he says, cleanse from a guilty conscience. No matter your baggage or the guilt you bear or the shame you bring, Jesus simply says, she's with me. He's with me, right into the heart of the presence of God. This is the heart of the gospel that Jesus Christ has reconciled us to God in worship. And this is what we're doing in worship. We are coming through Christ into the presence of God, the one who made us. This is why um, we begin every worship with the call to worship. Notice we don't just do this on our own. He's not saying we do this in your own private, personal, quiet time, but that we do this collectively to express our collective reconciliation together to God. Let us draw near. So we begin every service with what? A class, call, call to worship, yes. And who is calling you to worship? Is it me? No. Is it Brooke? No. Is it anyone here? No. Yes, Mark Sprinkle, it is God. Thank you. <laughs> it is God who calls us to worship. God is summoning and gathering and inviting and even making the way through his son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the spirit for us to enter in. And we are just responding and boldly entering in through Jesus into the very holiest place of God. And notice we're not just like talking about God. This is not like a class about God and God is somewhere far away. No, God is actually present here. By the power of the Spirit, he promises to be there when his people gather. And so we're actually encountering, receiving, exhorting, appealing, praying, and getting enriched and restored by the very presence of God among us. The word worship, you know, simply, it comes from the old English word worth-ship. It just simply means to ascribe worth or value to something that it is due if you found an old painting in your garage and discovered that it was actually a priceless Monet, you would not leave it in your garage. At least I hope you wouldn't. You would frame it and you would put it somewhere really important, maybe on the, you know, above the mantle on, on your, the central wall of your home. You would give it the place that it's due. And this is what we do in worship. This is why we put worship as one of the highest priorities of our lives. We are giving God the place of honor 
that he is due. We're giving him the, the first few hours of the first day of the week, giving him the highest praise, returning to the one who made us and reconciled us, who alone is worth, worthy of all the glory and honor and praise. So that's the first reason why corporate worship is so important, because we are celebrating the good news of the gospel right here at the beginning of a new week, that we are reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, that we're restored and we now give him the place of ultimate worth and value in our lives. Come, let us draw near. The second let us is let us hold fast. And here's what we learn here, that corporate worship forms us in the ways of faith and hope and love. He says in verse 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. You know, the pastor knows it is difficult to follow Jesus in this world. It's difficult to hold on to hope when there's so much suffering and pain and doubt. It's difficult to hold on to faith when it's so challenged and undercut. It's difficult to hold on to love when there's so much hate. And so one of the things that meeting together in corporate worship does is it builds habits of resilience that we might hold on and be formed in the ways of faith and hope and love. Something we often talk about as a worship team is that our worship has at least two functions. It's both expressive right? We express our praise and singing and adoration to God, but it is also formative in that when we're here in worship, we are actually being shaped and formed by the Spirit of God through the act of corporate worship. I don't know if you guys have ever noticed this before, but every single part of the worship service that we do is very intentional and is forming us in a particular way. So corporate worship is not just a couple of songs and a sermon, otherwise you could just get that with your iPhone, right? No, every part of our gathered worship is meant to shape us in the ways of faith, hope, and love. So, for example, the call to worship forms us as people who are responding to the call of God's grace. Confession forms us to become people who take responsibility for our own sin and brokenness. The assurance forms us as people who are able to receive and rejoice in the grace of God. The peace of Christ forms us as people who are united through the grace of Jesus to one another. The offering forms us as people who live not for ourselves, but who give our lives and our money to others. The scripture forms us and the preaching forms us as people who are being shaped by God's story. The prayers form us as people who live not for ourselves, but to intercede on behalf of the broken neighbor in the world. The commission forms us as people who are sent to participate in God's renewal. And the benediction forms us as people who live under the blessing of God. Every way here, friends, we're being formed in the ways of faith, hope, and love. Worship is like a dance class, and we are learning to respond to the beautiful music of God's grace. And as we learn those dance steps here, we're able to live them out more and more in the world. You don't always see it happening like exercise or eating broccoli. You don't feel yourself getting healthier and stronger. But as you keep these habits and as they continue week by week over time, you look up one day and you see that you are someone different. As an aside, um, this is one of the reasons why we are so committed to having our children with us in corporate worship. All the data shows that the number one factor that keeps kids in the faith as they grow into adults is not killer youth programming with smoke machines, um, but week by week participation in the corporate worship of God's people by simply being with us and watching us and seeing our own participation in the movements of our liturgy, our children are formed 
in the story of the gospel. So for young parents with your kids who are playing with your hair right now and picking their noses um, and making noises and squiggling and wiggling, I just want to assure you, I don't mind. I actually like it. And uh, we want them to be here. The Lord put the wiggles in your kids and you don't have to get them out, right? Our children are welcome here. You hear that? Our children are welcome here. And I know it's difficult for you sometimes, parents, but this is forming all of us in the ways of the kingdom of God, reminding us that Jesus welcomes all of us as we are. And we want them to know that they are welcome here. For adults who might be annoyed at the presence of loud, wiggly kids and who might be wondering why we're not one of those churches where you can just stick them somewhere so the adults can worship properly, may I gently say to you, get over it, right? (laughs) We want our church um, to be a safe and loving community for messy, loud, wiggly children as a direct confrontation with our obsessions with power and comfort and control. Our children remind us of what matters to be dependent people who come into God's presence as we are, wearing suits or jeans, wearing clean faces or snotty faces. The Lord invites us into his presence and the power of Jesus. We're formed here together as we learn to be people who live in hope. All right? So that's the two lettuces. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast. And one more lettuce. Let us spur one another on. Corporate worship forms us in the ways. No, I just said that. What's the next slide? (laughs) Corporate worship deepens our bonds with one another as a worshiping community. The pastor finally says, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. You know, we can't be sure why these early Christians were getting... um, lacking in commitment in their showing up to their times of worship together. Maybe they were lazy. Maybe they feared persecution, which was very real at the time. Maybe they just didn't like each other very much. We get a lot of that in the New Testament. (laughs) Maybe they just got used to having their own personal, private time of worship and prayer in their own homes, and they just were asking, do we really need to show up in the worship service to have a relationship with God? But their pastor exhorts them, don't give it up. The worship of God is a communal action carried out by a spiritual family, and it is truly impossible to do it alone. The more when we gather and worship, we become the community that God is forming us to be, and we are actually learning how to love, encourage, and spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let me just give you a little history lesson here. One of the great triumphs of the 16th century Reformation was a reclaiming of the participatory dimensions of the church's worship. You know, it was a revelation at the time that worship was not about the priest performing in Latin at the altar while the congregation watched, but was actually about the whole people of God participating in the liturgias, the the liturgy, the work of the people. It was reclaiming the participatory nature of worship. Now, I'm just going to make a little jab here, and I'm not, I'm not, I promise, I'm not like trying to make a jab at any particular church. I'm just jabbing at trends, okay? Many modern worship trends have ironically moved us backwards into a more medieval form of non-participatory worship in which the professionals perform up at the front and all the people are just observing, right? When a service feels more like a rock concert or a professional choral event and the pastor feels more like an inaccessible celebrity it subtly creates a passive, consumeristic, non-participatory approach to worship where you're really just there to get what you need for your own individual spiritual growth. And if if you think about it in this model, eventually, 
you don't even need the church. Because if it's just about you and your relationship with God and you can get all the stuff that happens at church on a Spotify worship playlist and by downloading a Tim Keller sermon, then why even show up? <laughs> the pastor insists that worship is emphatically a, a communal analog event. In the same way you can't play pickleball or dodgeball by yourself. You can try, but it's silly. You simply cannot be a Christian and worship God by yourself. And this is why he says, when you meet together to worship, spur one another on, encourage each other, speak and sing songs to each other, teach and challenge each other, be hospitable, pray for one another. It is difficult, if not impossible, to do these things online or by yourself. These things require physical presence and analog experience. You can get communication online, but you can't get communion. You can get information on your own, but you can't get transformation. That takes real embodiment, a messy analog experience of worship with others. So what are we doing here? We're returning every week to God and to each other. We're coming together with people we may not normally be friends with in order to express our common welcome in Christ. We greet each other in the greeting of peace to remind each other that Christ has made peace for us into a new community. And we serve each other in all the ways that need to happen here on Sundays. Even the act of worship itself, we are loving and accommodating one another, as Paul exhorted us to do in 1 Corinthians 11. One of the reasons we decided seven years ago to combine our contemporary and traditional services is because we realized that two congregations were forming around two very distinct musical preferences. So we've combined the services now for seven years, and this has allowed us to grow together as one unified congregation and also to grow in appreciation and respect for the different gifts and values that we each bring. Now, you may not feel that way sometimes. Sometimes you may internally grumble about a hymn or an anthem that feels too stodgy or traditional, or you may grumble about a song that feels too repetitive or is too loud or has words in a foreign language that you don't understand, but it's okay because we are all committed to be equally unhappy. Someone else is loving what you don't like, I promise you. And by committing to be together in our diverse preferences, we are committing to the work of love to honor each other in ways that our neighbor values, even when you don't. Marva Dawn, who's a worship theologian, tells a story about a person complaining to her about some music in the service that they didn't like, and she said to them rather cheekily, well, thank goodness we're not worshiping you. <laughs> <laughs> I have never said that to any of you. Uh, but God delights, God delights in the way the diverse hearts of his worshipers bring him praise. And by worshiping together, we learn to value each other in the way that God values our praise. Okay? So let's recap the three lettuces, friends. Let us draw near. Corporate worship expresses the truth of our collective reconciliation. Let us hold fast. Corporate worship forms us in the ways of faith and hope and love. And let us spur one another on. Corporate worship deepens our bonds with each other as a worshiping community. So let me just close with a few practical tips about how your engagement in our weekly worship might be more meaningful. First, commit. I am actually challenging you to commit to show up in person every single week. And let me just say as a caveat, I understand that there are some who can't do that. We are, we are going to continue to make our online streaming available because there are those of you, even right now, watching online, who are not able to be here, um, who are shut in for some reason, who have disabilities or some health condition that makes it impossible to be here. I know some of you sometimes travel and you want to be connected to the congregation. I understand that. 
Apart from those exceptions, though, I really want to challenge you to make being here at corporate worship one of the most important commitments you have every week, even when you're tired, even when you don't feel like it, even if you have a river house or a lake house that you love to be at, that you would prioritize coming back here and being present here on Sunday morning. What if attendance on Labor Day weekend was the same on Easter weekend? This is the kind of product that this kind of commitment builds. So commit. Commit to be here, to give God an hour or two and the people of God out of 168 hours that you have in a week. Because when we commit to this, we are committed to love, to love God and love one another with our hearts. So commit. Prepare. The pastor says, let us draw near with a sincere heart. He says, don't come flippantly or without a clear intent to praise him. Examine your heart and night, maybe the morning or the night before. Read the prayer for worship reflection that we send out on Thursday. Meditate on the scripture passage before arriving. Pray that God would make himself known to you and to the church beforehand. Preparing makes worship more meaningful. Engage. Um, You can be here and not be here, you know? I mean, just like you can go to the gym and sit on an exercise bike and slowly pedal while watching reruns of The Office on your phone, you can do that. Have you gone to the gym? Uh, Yeah, have you gone to the gym? No, (laughs) right? Um, The Presbyterian tradition is one that typically engages worship with just the mind, but I'm inviting you to go beyond that to engage God with your whole personhood, not just your mind, but your body and your soul and your spirit. Use your eyes to see the colors and the movements. Use your ears to listen to the words of the prayer and the liturgy and the hymns and the songs. Use your body to express praises to God, right? Your, your body, y- y'all are embodied people, right? And everybody uses their body in different ways to express praise. When white Presbyterians get really moved, they say, hmm. <laughs> but I know that's not y'all, some of y'all, and I, and I, and I really want to invite you <laughs> to express the fullness of who you are. And when the Psalms command us to worship, he uses active verbs like kneel, raise, raise hands, cry out, shout amen. You have full permission to feel and express the fullness of your embodiment in worship. This is how we engage the Lord in worship. And then finally, share. Share with others about what you experience and learn, how you're being formed week by week. We help each other hold fast when we do this to faith and hope and love. So here's our first practice, friends. Be fully present with the church every Sunday. With this simple, increasingly countercultural practice, we are doing something truly revolutionary. We are decentering ourselves and recentering God. We are encountering the living God and being renewed in his presence. We are resisting all that dehumanizes. We are turning towards one another and our neighbor. We are giving ourselves to God and to the world. We are grasping hope and building faith and exercising love. We are proclaiming God is real and Lord over all. We are surrendering to the God who is advancing his kingdom. We are reweaving our lives around his story. Why would you ever miss this? Come, let us draw near. Let's pray. We praise you, Lord God for all that you do in us as we gather as God's people week by week to worship. Would you form us week by week to be your faithful followers, living life with you, with others, and for the world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.